Today we're going to talk about acute renal failure, renal replacement therapy and some of the issues around it that, that I guess perhaps don't don't often get get taught as part of guidelines and teaching and it really comes down to something of individual practice and unit practice and a bit of a feel for the patient. Is that fair, Ricky? Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. Okay. To make, to make it easy, we're going to frame it with a briefcase. We're not going to bore people with listing with listing numbers per se, but we'll talk about some of the issues that, that crop up as the case develops. So we have a 62-year-old lady who's been admitted up to the up to the intensive care unit with a pneumonia, the good old-fashioned streptococcus kind of pneumonia, and also has to happen to have an AKI at the time. She's got a background of some hypertension and some type 2 diabetes, which she takes some glycoside, some and and some metformin as well. Coming up into the unit, she was struggling from a respiratory point of view, so she actually ends up being intubated and ventilated due to renal failure. And over the course of, of the next few hours on her blood gases, her AKI is obviously worsening because she's becoming acidotic and she's becoming oliguric as well. You know, her urine output is falling to 20-30 mils an hour. I guess the first thing that's easiest to cover, Ricky, Ricky is without obviously I haven't used specific numbers as part as part of the case. But why would we start somebody like this on renal replacement therapy? I think you've kind of got these sort of classic indications that really good work for most patients, really. The way I normally sort of teach them to people is I'm kind of breaking down into the vowels A, E, I, O, U. A would be acidosis, and that's kind of an acidosis that's in, well, obviously metabolic acidosis, it's intractable and it's not going to get better. E is electrolyte disturbances, which is very typically potassium although it can very rarely be occasionally the others like a high capsule. I is ingestion, sort of ingestion of dialyzable toxins, and the typical ones would be things like glycol or methanol. O, overload, so then fluid overload that's not responsive to diuretic therapy. And then you've got U, which is uremic complications. Typically, again, the reason I see it most often started patients on replacement therapy would be kind of uremic and ketalopathy, but you know, uremic pericarditis and things like that, they'd really be the big indication. From a uremia point of view, there's no there's no set number for the urea that we'd be saying, right, above this level, this is where we this is where we'd be starting it, is there? No. So I remember, I remember this quite a lot of being, um, I would say it, it feels like a lot of people seem to have the number 30 in their head, above 30, and people get a bit sort of nervous and start people on the filter, really, mm. really great in 30. There was, I think, a recent publication that said that probably there's a bit of evidence above 40, possibly benefit of if someone's got a urea 40, starting them on a filter above that. Certainly, from my point of view, anything up to 30, I've got no concerns with sort of whatsoever. Above 30, I suppose it, it depends on what the patient's doing. If they've got no other kind of metabolic problems, if their urea is holding at 30, they're passing urine, I generally just sit tight. If they've got any sort of confusion, delirium, certainly if the urea is going up, I might start starting the filter a bit sooner. Okay. And what about if you if you think they've got a degree of sort of platelet platelet dysfunction that you think is due to the urea? Would that would that perhaps make you make you sway towards it as well? I suppose possibly. I guess it depends what's going on with the rest of the patient. If you're if you're concerned that they are bleeding, then I suppose there is an argument there potentially you could start the filter earlier. I think that would be you know, a reasonable indication. I don't think you're ever going to get in trouble, you know, for starting a filter with a urea with 30. If you've got another indication for doing it and you know, if you're worried about the platelet function, I think that's entirely reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you said that 
You said about the acidosis, particularly that it's a it's an intractable acidosis that's not going to get better with medical therapy because I think sometimes we we often get referrals to intensive care for a patient with an AKI who may have an acidosis and you can sometimes get repeat repeated phone calls about a patient with with an acidosis that's not that's not that that's not that mild and I think a lot of the time outside of intensive care there's perhaps a misunderstanding that it's not necessarily the presence of the acidosis itself that's going to make us feel to the patient is that fair yeah, I think that's probably about right. There's no sort of set set numbers for acidosis, either pH, base deficit, or bicarb level, where you'd be thinking, well, if it hits that, and then we're putting someone on, on onto the filter. I think, certainly from my perspective, deciding to put someone on the filter is almost a bit of, it's more a case of trying to gauge what you think is going to happen really in the next six hours mm. or, or more, really, for that patient. So, you know, the patient you're talking about, patient with pneumonia, it's just sort of coming to the unit. They're they're sick. They've just been intubated. They're going on onto NORAD. The urine output's tailing off. You know that's not going to get better in the next six hours. You can muck about with things like bicarb and stuff, but you know you are sort of delaying the inevitable there. And really, I think it comes down to sort of looking at that whole clinical picture mm-hmm. as to what you think is going to happen in the in the sort of near future, really, as to what whether you decide well, you know, just bite the bullet. Just, start them on, on renal replacement mm. therapy now or whether you sort of think about waiting and certainly you know in my experience i guess the ph is below metabolic acidosis and ph is sort of less than sort of 7.2 you start to get concerned about those mm. but again you know if your patients come in you know you've you've got them on some not some norad and things are stabilizing and actually you know say that urine output start to pick up you probably can sort of sit and wait on that and see what happens. So it's not, it's a, it's a decision that's dynamic, just as the, pa- the the patient is dynamic, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And you, you mentioned you mentioned bicarb as well. So I mean, I I, I freely admit I'm I'm very skeptical of the use of a bicarb, particularly in acute acute kidney injury patients with an acidosis on on intensive care. And, for me, I, I think I always feel like it's used as a way of if we if we just make the acidosis look a bit better with with giving some with giving some bicarb, then I always feel like it buys time, but doesn't alter the the end result, and that the patient almost always ends up needing renal replacement therapy one way or another. Anyway, what do you feel about about that? I think bicarb can be great for the right sort of selection of patients. I think I'd share your concern that sometimes it's used, and it, I'm not even sure you buy in time with it. You sort of delaying the inevitable sometimes by giving people bicarb. And particularly, I sometimes see people reach for sort of the 8.4% sort of high concentration bicarb. And I think if you're reaching for that, you probably, you know, in your other hand, you should be reaching for, for a VASCAF, really. But again, I think it comes back to that, you know, what's the clinical picture of the patient? I mean, again, sort of fairly recently, probably only a couple of weeks ago, we had a patient brought into our ITU overnight, with pancreatitis, actually. They'd had fluid, they're on a bit of NORAD, uh, their, their bicarb, their base deficit was you know, getting quite low. The trainee overnight, quite sensibly, said, you know, I think we probably need to go on the filter first thing in the morning. I think he'd rang me up and I said, just give some IV bicarb, the, the kind of weaker sort of 1.24% sort of overnight in terms of fluid. And because that patient was passing urine, because they, you know, their blood pressure had stabilised, their parameters were kind of improving. Although they did have a metabolic acidosis overnight, actually things started to improve by the morning. And I think probably, and it'd be hard to prove that, but I think I just sort of stayed off. By the morning, the 
urine and throughout the day their the serum bicarb increased and they never went on the filter. But again, that's that's that whole sort of picture of the patient where things improving rapidly and for that patient they were. On the other hand, you know, if you've got a patient that's sort of deteriorating in front of your eyes, to say sort of given them bicarb, it's I don't think it's going to make much difference. And not only is it probably delaying in, delaying the inevitable, I think you're probably actually giving them the wrong treatment when you could be putting them onto renal replacement therapy and actually clearing out some of that acid rather than just buffering it with bicarb. Yeah, and I suppose it's where the I suppose the contrast between the patient you described and the and the example that we're that we're using is that you know if as we've already said it the, the decision to use RRT is is probably quite a dynamic decision and actually you may you may you may well find that in the process of trying to of trying to make the decision the patient as as your patient did does get better and there's perhaps not the not the immediate need um, but it also I suppose reinforces the idea that it's not not purely the acidosis itself that we're that we're treating with filtration is it? it's the it's the it's the whole picture of, of the patient that we're that we're targeting yeah absolutely i think that that's what it really comes down to i think people and probably examined actually tried to sort of simplify it to being sort of one specific number or a few numbers but actually you're right it's the whole it's the whole picture about what the patient's doing certainly on itu you know generally you've got the sicker patients more multi-organ failure type patients in my the other part of my job, the sort of renal side of things, we do tend to get more of the single organ kind of you know stable patients who have an AKI for and I think probably bicarb works what's better for them because they're more generally generally stable and it buys them time for them to just recover. Mm. Whereas the ITU patients come in, they're more of a sort of generally unwell, multi-organ failure, and bicarb you know and sort of trying to clean things up at the edges of trying rather than sort of fixing the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And obviously bicarb therapy is is used as oral supplementation longer term in, in chronic in chronic renal failure patients anyway, um, which I suppose sometimes is where is where I can imagine it, it does get very confusing for for people who perhaps aren't, aren't as used to to seeing these patients acute acutely on on top of it. You know, there's that there's that old there's that desire to to do something and make something look look better sometimes. All right, so. We've made the decision that the the lady we're we're talking about that we we feel like she she justifies needing renal replacement therapy. Her urine output is persistently low despite having fluid boluses and adequate adequate arterial blood pressure with some with some NORAD on board, which is escalating despite fluid boluses. She is persistently acidotic with a pH of seven point seven point one eight despite everything else, and the urine output is just tailing off and is now sort of zero to ten mils mils an hour instead we were getting set up to to put her on the filter and let's say you've got you've got somebody who's less experienced with it and they've they're sort of trying to figure out where to put the the vascath itself are there any places where where it's preferred where it where it's better to cite it initially yeah absolutely so certainly by far and away the best site for a vascath is going to be the right internal jugular I think that's generally what most people would would reach for as probably the the side that most commonly most comfortably put in put in lines. I think the problem sort of arises that quite often we find patients that have already either come from theatre or or you know, have been on on ITU for a day or so on some NORAD and have already got to a right internal jugular uh, CVC central lining. And so I think probably the the difficult bit is actually where's the second best site for for putting a vascan. 
see a lot of Vascats put in on the left internal jugular, and actually the evidence suggests that because of the sort of convoluted route across the veins there, that the line gets sort of kinked a bit more, gets pinched off, and you get much more problems with flows on the filter with left internal jugular Vascats. So generally, my, my advice is, is right internal jugular is absolutely, you know, sort of gold standard, the best place to put them. Second best is typically actually the femorals, just because it's, it's almost a straight line to the IVC. Uh, you don't get the issues with flow. I know there's a lot of concern about infection, femoral root, you're kind of often sort of in skin folds there. That hasn't seemed to have been borne out actually that much of the evidence. There was some previous concern, but actually whether it's an improvement in the lines, we tend to see less kind of femoral line infections than, than I think was previously reported. So beyond that, you've then got subclavian. There's certainly there's a big association with um, venous stenosis from subclavian vascats. I don't think it's the same with a central line, but certainly with vascats, that's that's the worry. Must be I, I don't know fully, but I suspect the right to right subclavian vascats is almost taking a right angle turn there to get down into to the SVC from the subclavian. And I wonder whether that in itself, that sort of tight bend there causes a lot of, sort of irritation to the vessel and that causes the stenosis. I don't quite know if it's, it's quite so bad in the left subclavian. So to put that into a nutshell, certainly the right internal jugular would be my first choice for a, for a vascat, followed by the femorals, followed by left internal jugular, followed by the subclavians. And what about, do I have worked in units where, where sort of if you're putting lines into a patient, doing a double puncture on, on the right, so a CVC and a vascat is perfectly fine. I've also worked in units where the idea of doing, of doing that is... It is is really discouraged. Does it does it really matter? Do you think? I suspect probably not. Again, I've been the vast majority of the units I've, units I've worked at haven't done double puncture. I've seen it a few times in a few units. I know there's sort of this concern touted that let's say you're putting a medication in through the central line and you're pulling blood out a large flow through the vascat that you're going to dialyze out some of that medication and then typically the concern is things like NORAD, but must be, I've not personally seen that and experienced that. I suspect it's not quite the concern that, that people make it out to be. But so in my practice, typically I wouldn't put two lines in the same vessel, but equally I can't see a, a strong reason why not. Yeah, I suppose it, it's always going to be with user unit preference as to whether or not you do something like that. Especially if you're putting in the central line for the ver- for the very first time, you may, may still not know at that point that the person is going to go on to renal replacement therapy. If it it may feel like they're, they're heading in that way, but if you don't know, you don't want to go putting in a vascath unnecessarily because just it's an unnecessary invasive procedure, isn't it? Admittedly, when I put central lines into patients who are who are sick, where you think, well, conceivably, I can imagine you going on to renal replacement therapy, even if it's not today, but maybe in the next couple of days. I'll typically just put the central line in on the left-hand side, just by default anyway, because I just think it saves it saves a bit of faff later later down the road. And it isn't like the left IJ is any more difficult than the right IJ to put an, a normal CVC in, realistically. I completely agree with that. And actually, I'd argue maybe we should be thinking about just putting in CVCs in the left. It's kind of a routine, actually. Some patients, very obvious, you predict they're going to need to go on the filter within you know a couple of days. But actually, you know, we get patients come in a bit septic, they have a line put in there from NORAD, and really it's only a couple of days later that you know, things might not improve the way you were expecting. And then they're going on to a filter five days in. And I can't help but wonder whether we shouldn't just be as more of a routine, just put my central lighting on the left. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not uncommon as well that you may receive a patient from theatre who's undergone a, a major a major operation and kidneys may have been threatened before the operation and then due to all the all the inflammatory process, the fluid shifts that they then go through, that kidney kidneys then worse and they end up, end up on the filter, but the, the right IJ is already taken by the by the line from from theatres. Maybe maybe it is where I suppose it's the it's the accepted standard, though there's no there's, I'm not aware of any evidence as the right is superior to the left for central lines. And maybe it's where we just there maybe there ought to be a push to change that change that as the as a standard approach. All right. So our patient is going on the filter. Vascath has gone in, it's gone into gone into the right. We've taken an x-ray of it. So we're now we're now happy that we can that we're going to we're going to start start renal replacement therapy for for our patient but the unit that we're working on has got two different anticoagulation policies it's got a heparin policy and it's got a, um, a citrate policy as well is either one better than than the other or is it more that it depends on the situation and there are reasons why you would use one over the other i think this is probably one of those situations where actually yes it, it, yeah citrate is better whilst it you know, certainly it's the newer kid on the block it's probably been around for 10 years or more but actually yeah citrate has got so many advantages over heparin that i think i can fairly sort of decisively say that yes citrate is a lot better really see the main reason is citrate is you know, it's a regional anticoagulation you're anticoagulating anticoagulating the filter you're stopping the filter clotting whereas you're not having that same anticoagulation effect on the patient uh, certainly, you know, there used to be all heparin, heparin infusions into the filter, which inevitably would, would wash on into the patient and you'd end up sort of anticoagulating the patient to, to one degree or another. And certainly the vast majority of the times that is a problem, whether you're post-surgery, whether you're, you're septic in VIC, whatever, having additional anticoagulation on board generally is, is a bad thing. And then sort of citrate came along, which is working fantastically, really. So not only are you not anticoagulating the patient, filters are lasting longer with citrate, filters aren't getting clotted off quite so quickly with citrate. And generally, yeah, it's, it's working brilliant. I feel like I'm a salesman with citrate there. <laughs> yeah, because I think the, certainly when, when units I've worked in where citrate has just come in, the, the hardest thing that people have found with citrate is you suddenly have to make the decision about when you actually stop the filter. It used to be you just say, oh, when the, when the circuit clots, we'll just, that's a convenient point to stop it. And then if the circuit itself is lasting 72 hours and and beyond, you, you've then got to start trying to make the decision about when you actually do stop do stop it. We can come we can come on to we can come on to that later, but I just want to stick with anticoagulation for for the time being. So is there a situation where you would actually, where you might prefer heparin over citrate due to the actual patient factors? Probably the only example I can think of, that there is this concern that in patients with severe liver impairment, that giving citrate, citrate goes into the patient and is metabolized by the liver and I think some degree by the kidneys actually into bicarbonate normally. So, so normally if you've got a, a patient who as a working liver, some degree of functioning liver, the citrate that gets washed into them and with the return of blood, that citrate just simply gets metabolized into bicarb, which again actually actually helps the patient in terms of their buffering their blood a little. So uh, there is sort of some concern about patients with severe liver impairment about using citrate with them. I, I've kind of read different reports on, on that. 
Certainly, I haven't seen reports where it's used in patients that have had quite significant liver resections and still is, is not an issue at all. But that would be that would probably be the only patient with a significant liver injury that I might be a bit more concerned about. But then I guess you've got to weigh the, the risks and benefits there. If you've got significant liver injury, uh, presumably clotting is going to be quite abnormal, whether you're procoagulant or not, and whether giving them more heparin is going to be the right thing as well. So I think that's that's a situation you probably need a bit more thinking about. Really. What if it's a patient who requires anticoagulation for um, for another reason? So let's say that it's a patient, a vascular patient who's got ischemic, ischemic limbs, and maybe the surgeons want them to be on a heparin infusion for that is that adequate enough from a filter point of view or would you still have them on on citrate for the filter i think i'd probably still have them on citrate actually for two reasons one it's far more common for nurses to be comfortable and experienced with with citrate certainly we had to i think we had to use some heparin in one of the first covid waves for you know, so many patients on on filters and actually the nurses had forgotten how to use heparin our guidelines were approaching out of date so I think citrate is kind of easier all round. And again, as you've said, you're going to have some greater filter life with citrate. If you've got a patient who's already anticoagulated, you'd still be having to monitor their anticoagulation on the filter to make sure it stays you know, adequate level to, to keep the filter running. Uh, so I think overall, actually, I think we've got a lot more expertise with citrate nowadays. And it's just generally easier to use citrate and there's not a contraindication to use citrate. Even if your patient's anticoagulated, I'd still use citrate for them. Okay. Let's say we get we get 48 hours with our patient into, into being on the filter. And the question now starts to become one off well, but they use knees are looking better. So urea is coming down, creatinine, creatinine is coming down, but we sort of haven't reached a point where you know the she's still pneumonia is still going on, vasopressor requirements are still fairly high, but you start being asked questions by the by the by the nursing staff by some of the juniors about well, but Cretan's looking looking a lot better. It's almost it's sort of heading back towards where their where their baseline is. How do you how do you interpret those values when they're on the filter? Because my understanding is it's they're artificially generated by the fact that they're on the filter, and we still can't really use them in decision making. Pretty much exactly that. I sort of don't interpret them to be honest. They are fairly fairly meaningless when they're on the filter. In terms of sort of changing your management, almost as soon as you turn on the filter, the creatinine is completely irrelevant because you're just artificially removing that creatinine. As we said earlier, I think the urea is still a useful kind of as a guide to what's going on. And obviously the, the sodium and potassium are still useful. But yeah, certainly if someone's on the filter, the creatinine is completely meaningless. And mm. As, as EGFR is calculated from creatinine, that is, that is just as meaningless in terms of a number. So, yeah, it's not something I'd, I would generally look at, really. Yeah, okay. But obviously, one of the factors that we put this patient on, on the filter for was because of acidosis. Would you do anything different if, say, the patient's on the filter, it's been running for running for a while, the acidosis isn't shifting, or in fact, sometimes it gets it gets worse would you adjust anything give anything different or do you just hold do you just hold on and and, ju- and just wait for it to get better over time i mean obviously with the metabolic acidosis the filter sort of buys you time it buys you time to treat the cause of that metabolic acidosis i think all these things with intensive care they they don't get better unless you've made a diagnosis and then treating that underlying cause a lot of our, a lot of our machines on ITU kind of bias that time for that treatment to work. And I think a filter 
apart from removing the dialyzable toxins, it, it's very much just another tool to sort of buy us some time. Really. In terms of what you can do, there's, there's an acidosis protocol. Certainly with, in our unit, we've got that that essentially makes some alterations to, to the flow of blood and the flow of citrate to, to try to improve that uh, acidosis a bit quicker. Uh, I'm sure everyone's got local guidelines that make slightly different changes there. So that would be the first thing I'd be reaching for is the sort of acidosis protocol. Beyond that, there's probably not a lot. If you're already treating the underlying cause, the only other thing I would think of would be bicarb, IV bicarb. But again, we've talked about that. I suspect you're we're not really fixing the underlying problem. Um, you might make pH better, and maybe you know, maybe if you've got something with a horrendous pH of sort of below seven, in theory, you know, you might improve the cardiac contractility by giving some bicarb and improving that. But those would be sort of the the last ditch sort of desperate measures that I might be thinking of really. So go go a few days, go a couple more days down the line and have managed to get the patient off the off the filter yet. And you find news and ease have got better, but we've still not reached a point. And the patient's looking really quite boggy now. You know, so sort of very sort of gross, grossly edematous. As as often happens with with ITU patients, no matter how hard you try, they end they can end, end up with many liters positive on on their sort of overall fluid balance since, since the beginning of, of admission. How do you go about managing that fluid balance on on the filter? Because normally, obviously, there's a fluid extraction rate or ratio that the that you that you plug into the filter, and it and it just alters the the speed of of effluent in order to in order to to manage it. So, I suppose that that's two questions, really, isn't it? Is how do you decide how much is enough? And I suppose also, also, then what what do you do if you think that you've perhaps taken too much? Off and how do you how do you judge that balance? You say how much is enough? How much to take off? Do you mean? Yeah, yeah. So I think fluid balance. I think fluid overload with the sort of bogginess and the dentist patient we talk about. I think that's really. I think it's a really important thing. And you're absolutely right. It's a problem that a lot of patients face. I think it's very easy to pour in quite a lot of fluid early on, and I'm certainly a big advocate for early vasopressors actually. So very, yeah, as you say, very common sort of a few days down the line for patients become quite edematous. In terms of what I do, again, look at the sort of general general picture. What's the what's the vasopressors doing? What's the blood pressure doing? If things have settled down, if our patient, if they're not on increasing doses of normat, kind of almost as soon as they start to level out, I start to try and think about getting rid of some of that fluid. As to how much, I think first of all, Ideally, we should be aiming kind of as a minimum kind of a neutral balance for patients. So you need to think about what's gone in the day before, what, what infusions are going in, stop anything unnecessary. So again, I'm, I'm a big fan of, sort of not giving any maintenance fluids to patients. And then you need to start thinking about how quickly you want to get that fluid out. And actually, I think that's a really difficult question. I just don't think we have an answer for. I think there's a lot of worry about getting the fluid out too quickly. If you make them intravascularly deplete, you're going to cause them further impaired organ impairment but I don't think there's quite the same amount of worry about leaving a patient boggy and edematous with mm. kind of venous congestion impairing those organs as well it leads me I'm quite aggressive actually with removing fluids I suspect probably more aggressive than the majority of my sort of colleagues that I work with I don't think there's any sort of set in stone answer for how much fluid to take off I would say typically I would aim for a minimum of two litres a day see what that patient does say your your norad requirements start to go up significantly then you probably need to go a bit a bit easier than that but equally 
you know, I've given patients diuretics and got five litres out of them in a day. They've been absolutely fine. I've taken you know, four litres plus off a patient in a day and their blood pressure has completely stayed stable uh, with no changes. Cap refills absolutely fine, metabolically absolutely fine. And I, and I sort of worry that we're maybe not quite as aggressive as we could be when mm. patients start to improve in getting that fluid off. There seems to be so many advantages to get rid of all that fluid excess. You know, you've got a patient, you've got better organ perfusion, you've got less tissue edema, you've got uh, better wound healing, uh, less fluid in the lungs. There just seems to be a lot of advantages to getting that fluid off, actually. Yeah, yeah, and I guess especially with the with the the, the big push is, is towards early vasopressors and and more judicious use of fluid. I mean, like like you, the the first thing I try and do is to try and stop giving patients maintenance mm -hmm. fluids. And I think sometimes it's really hard, yeah. especially yeah. Yeah, especially in the position I'm often in, where it's maybe it's it's overnight. Um, it might be a post op patient and. You know, they, they might have a slight persistent base deficit or something. And you always ask the question about, well, do you want to give, do you want to give a bit of fluid? And, you know, often I think, I think I come across as a bit facetious sometimes when I make the point of, well, I don't, I mean, I don't drink a lot during the day, but I definitely don't drink anything when I'm asleep at night. And yet we give sleeping patients maintenance fluids overnight or, you know, all patients who who are already established on on NG feed and that and that's sufficient in the way of volume. We we still give them maintenance fluids. I suspect this this is a, a topic in in of in of itself that we probably don't have the don't have the time to to address um, right now. You just come up with a load of my pet peeves instead. Fluid balance is really just an individual thing. It, it depends upon I suppose where the patient is starting from, what they actually look like in terms of their clinical state and. I suppose your, what your goal with with taking the fluid off is, um, because I'm, I'm guessing it's it would always be very difficult to try and get a patient back to you know an overall neutral balance. If you take all of their fluid fluid balance from from the beginning to the to the point that you're up to, if they're say 15, 16 liters positive over the course of a week of a, of a week of a week, ten days, something like that, it's going to be very difficult to get them you know, 15 litres neg negative without actually having them on the filter potentially for, for just as long um, again. And the may patient may get better over that time period and no longer need need the filter. Is that, do you think that's fair? I think so. Again, I think patients get fluid overloaded for a variety of reasons. Often once we see they've had lots of fluid from the ward, you know, as soon as things start to level out, we should be thinking about getting rid of that as to how quickly, you know, I think... If you were taking off, let's say your patient was 15 litres positive and you were taking off five litres a day, that does seem pretty aggressive. But actually, I don't think we know, to be mm. honest, how, how aggressive we can be. Taking off a few litres, two, three litres and seeing how the patient responds, I think that would be a reasonable thing to aim for a day. Yeah, yeah. all right. And I guess if they don't respond well, you just you just pull back and absolutely more gentle. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I suppose what I... What my worry is, you know, if they do respond well and you get those three litres off, then maybe we could have gone for four. Mm. I, don't know. I don't know. Are we missing an opportunity to, to move things along a bit quicker? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's almost where you, I suppose, because you, you often see people start gently and maybe start, so we'll, we'll take 100 mils an hour off. Or yeah. It's almost where you need you need to say, well, actually, let's take let's take a a maximal amount of fluid off first and then, and then based on the response, actually pull back and find... Find where the happy place is there, rather than rather than working your way up 
slowly where you potentially never reach what what you could do if you actually started aggressively and then and then came back from there much like you'd titrate oxygen you know you'd start, you often start much higher than what the patient needs and based upon how the patient responds you, you pull back yeah I think that makes absolute sense and to be honest I think that probably is actually my approach um, I do get some raised up brows from the the nurses when I, I turn it up to sort of 500 mil negative an hour but then you've got to take into account they might be getting all their infusions another 100 mils an hour in so actually you know they're only, you're only really taking off say 400 mils an hour give that a few hours you know see what the patient's what, what's happening with the patient if you come back in you know four hours and then more rats gone up and metabolically they're a bit worse or the cap refill is prolonged then obviously you need to sort of dial that back but I think some of these things where we probably could go we probably could start a bit more aggressively mm. and then dial that back or actually just wait and see see what happens yeah and of course the radar raised eyebrows you're getting from the nurses could be because you touch the machine uh yeah I, yeah I don't think they like that I, I learned how to do that yeah yeah <laughs> all right so We've touched on things that we, do, we don't necessarily know the answer to. So one of the one of the things which I think we, I think I think that never really, uh, yeah, I've necessarily never been told a firm answer for it. But I think that's because there isn't a firm answer for it. Is when do you when do you take a patient who's acutely on on renal replacement therapy? When when do you stop it? When do you take them off? Or and how do you how do you make the decision to do so? I think this is a difficult decision. Lots of trainees are always thinking about when do I start a patient on a filter, and that's. That's a difficult decision, but yeah, the decision to take patients off a filter is is almost a bit more nebulous. Actually, there were some recommendations. I can't, of course, imagine where they came from, but the suggestion is if your patient's clinically improving, if the problem's been kind of treated or, or is under treatment, their vasoactive requirements are decreasing, and their urine output is more than four hundred mils a day without fruitamide, without diuretic, sort of driving that that is a reasonable time to to trial the patient off off the filter i still see a lot of people that but almost just sort of arbitrarily say we're coming to the end of the 72 hours there's still no urine output we're going to just try them off the filter to see what happens and that's i think that's a bit of a waste of time actually so so my practice would be if the patient's clinically improving the urine output is is increasing to that sort of 400 500 mils a day and everything else is going the right direction, that's probably the right time to do it. On the other hand, if, you, if even though your patient's improving, they're not passing any urine, then there's no point stopping that filter because you'll be back on it again about 24 hours. Yeah, so one practice which, I, which I've seen and I've never really understood is the idea of a ferrosamide challenge when you, you may be coming towards the end, that, that 72 hour mark, you're going to have to change the, fil- the filter circuit and there's the idea of, oh, well, when they come off the filter, why don't we give them a, a bigger dose of ferrosamide? And I think it's almost always been sold to me as, yeah, it's like it's like just turning the kidneys back on. Fan of ferrosamide challenges? I was a bit worried you can say kickstart the kidneys there, which is like sort of toxic to my ears, really. <laughs> um, no, not really. So I have heard this and certainly seen it in the past. And I think I get the, the thinking behind it. If you give ferrosamide, you're going to, you're going to increase the urine output, which you know is going to improve things. But when you get down to what you're really trying to do, what you're interested in for a patient is getting those waste products out of the blood. And I'm not going to get into sort of kidney physiology here, but basically, you, you know, with a working kidney, you're getting the, the waste products out of the blood and into the start of the tubule. 
freeze mode works sort of halfway down the tubule. So you're not actually getting more of that waste out of the blood. You might get more, uh, more water out with diuretics. And if your patient's you know, fluid overloaded, then absolutely by all means give them give them fruzamide. It's not nephrotoxic. That's a good way to get rid of more water. But if actually it's the other things you're worried about, the, the acidosis, the potassium, the, the uremia, then fruzamide isn't going to get your patient off the filter or, or keep them off a filter uh, any longer, really. Yeah, uh, as you say, the certainly you know, in, in preparation for my exams and everything, the, the 400 mil per 24 hours is the, is the thing that I found most commonly quoted, you know, as long as it's not driven by diuretics um, as, think, a, as an indication of renal recovery. Yeah, I think they said in, in the same article, I read that in, I think it's, if they're on diuretics, you need more than two litres of urine mm. out per day. Yeah, all you're really doing is you're just giving more dilute, making more dilute, yeah. the urine more dilute, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's going to be a small subset of patients where they may not, they may not, at least in the immediate setting, make it, make it off the filter. Is it, I guess the, there won't be a set point, but are there any signs when you're looking at one of these patients where they perhaps are taking a while to, to be able to be free of the filter that you look at them and think maybe we're actually, we need to transition towards dialysis as opposed to filtration i think it's just trial and error actually i think certainly for myself i'm guided by that urine output and the condition of the patient if they sort of reach those criteria i'm happy to sort of give them a trial off the filter i should say some patients actually you know from their their sepsis they've got persistent acute kidney injury and again depending on what the baseline was like beforehand they may not actually reach a point sort of anytime soon where they they stay off, off renal replacement therapy entirely. But really, it's a case of giving them that, that trial, um, giving them a few days to see what the, the user needs do off the filter. And then, and then if, if things carry on deteriorating, then that's the point where actually you might need renal input. And it might be that you know, if everything's improved and your patient's ready to step down to a ward, and they need to go to the renal ward either for ongoing monitoring or actually they might need to be established on long term. Intermittent hemodialysis, and, and that does happen from you know severe sepsis. You can get renal sort of cortical process, and it never recovers. Equally, I've seen some patients from the dance from the uh, renal side of things that have had an acute kidney injury on ITU for whatever reason, and come to us, have ended up dialysed for a couple of months, and then actually do recover function. But the only way of knowing is to give them that time off the filter and the other kind of parameters are met, and then wait and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I guess if their underlying condition has improved, then you'd you'd think that the kidneys are going to improve with them. It's just some people, as you say, they they just take a bit longer than others, don't they? Mm. Great. I mean, I have no other no other things that I that I particularly um, want to want to want to grill want to grill you about. Um, we certainly covered everything that I sort of want to want to know. Any any final thoughts, closing remarks that you want to leave? Leave people with Ricky. Uh, no, I think then what I would say to trainees, anyone listening, is, is that it's a difficult decision to make to put someone on the filter. I think it comes down to trying to sort of predict what's going to happen in the next sort of 12 hours or so. In terms of taking a patient off the filter, I think everything needs to be improving with that increased urine output before you think about taking them off the filter. 
otherwise I suspect we'll be back on in, in a few hours really mm. yeah okay great well thanks for that Ricky that's um certainly very informative I think the main the main thing that for for people listening you'll notice is that what we've tried to do is to talk about things from a very practical um viewpoint this this isn't designed this isn't supposed to be um strict guidance as to as to what you should and shouldn't do because there are there are an awful lot of gray areas that we that we've tried to just um explore from a practical point of view we haven't necessarily talked about firm yes and no questions or, or firm firm numbers very deliberately because we do recognize that that there's perhaps not necessarily the evidence to support one way or another and sometimes it does just come down to to practice so i think we'd we'd really appreciate any feedback so if anybody listening does have any thoughts or additions then we'd appreciate you getting getting in touch with us which you can get in touch just through just through the the ficam um, website and through 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 ficm learning as well hopefully the podcast is going to is going to sort of develop the, these little clinical scenarios where we'll be able to bring them to you more more regularly and sort of branch out branch out from here so i'd say any feedback is welcome and obviously if anybody wants to get involved and, and help and help us or have got a particular topic of interest then get in touch and we'll be very happy to get you get you on board. Thank you.